Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. I am Kaylee Fretz, back in Boulder, Colorado, back with the usual Cycling Tips Podcast crew. We've got Abby Mickey. Abby, what's your favorite color? Yellow. Cool. Dane, you're not in the closet anymore. What's your favorite type of bug? Oh, I was all... You threw me a curveball there. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are those, like, this aquamarine teal bright green blue things that you every, every once in a while you'll see them they're really bright i have no idea what they're called I'm gonna look them up i have no podcast. idea what you're talking about i'll look them up at the podcast <laughs> we'll, we'll get you that answer by the end of the podcast whatever yeah. the aquamarine teal blue thing is shoddy dave describe the worst haircut you've ever had oh man last year uh, no was it last year when the tour de france was on and i didn't go and i was recovering from a severe couple of spouts of epilepsy i went to get my hair cut at the local hairdressers on the cheap and the woman gave me a shocking job like i I just i was in there and i couldn't be bothered really getting involved with it because i was that tired and i regret going to the hairdressers tired i look like um oh well not good let's just say that not good (laughs) and that's saying something because my hair is never any good Though I tell you, I found some lovely organic shampoo down the local shop, but carry on. (laughs) (laughs) James, welcome back to the show. What question should I ask you? Uh, i got to figure you had a whole bunch of them prepared already. Oh, no, I'm just just pulling them off the top of my head, literally. Ask James a favorite hair question. If you could only wear one pair of shoes for the rest of your life, would you wear flip-flops or big, huge steel toe boots? Flip-flops. Bold play. That's an, e- that, that's an easy question because, well, I wear flip-flops pretty much always except when it's snowing. Yeah, even now? Even now with the, like, 18 inches of fresh snow on the ground outside? Well, no. See, in that, situ- in that situation, I would just not go outside until the snow goes away. And then, but if I'm wearing big, heavy, steel-toed boots all the time, then my feet would be like kind of hot and sweaty all the time, and that would be gross. It's a six-spotted tiger beetle. I just looked it up. Uh, <laughs> we can move on quickly from this, but they're really cool. You should look them up. They're very colorful. Oh my! Oh my! Six we gotta get rolling here. Abby's got a dentist appointment know, to go to. That's Let's true. Let's get going here. I feel like this is maybe one of the best best intros to the podcast we've ever had. So I'm going to take this opportunity. Before we get into the episode, I have a request of all of you. We have a request of all of you. This year has been crazy, and we have tried to be there for you despite all of the craziness as a distraction and an inspiration and hopefully a bit of, a, of, a, of an escape, perhaps. And in return, we're asking anyone who hasn't joined Velo Club already to consider joining. It's 79 US dollars per year which works out to about two cups of coffee a month. Not too bad. And as a thank you, we will send out a copy of our annual Coffee Table magazine. It's in production as we speak, and we'll be shipping them out at the end of the year. So if you love Cycling Tips, if you love the Cycling Tips podcast, if you're really, really, really happy that you now know what that beetle's called, head over to cyclingtips.com slash sign up and support this podcast and everything that we do. Sign up for Velo Club. Thanks very much in advance. Now, crew, let's get into the episode. We've got a fantastic finale to the Giro d'Italia. 
not something I think most of us would have predicted, any of us would have predicted. We're going to talk all about Teo and what happened over the weekend. We're going to give you a Vuelta update. We are going to discuss the new Oakleys that just showed up because we spent 15 minutes before we hit record debating whether they're the ugliest or most amazing sunglasses we've ever seen. We'll do a quick chat about Depana and talk about how the youth are coming through at the moment. Uh, lots of young riders without families have had very good post-lockdown fitness. We're going to talk a bit about that. So let's get into it. Let's start off with the Giro. Crazy, crazy finale to the Giro. We came into the final stage tied on time, right, Dane? Tell me what happened. Yeah, uh, basically since the last podcast and this podcast, there was quite a bit of a shakeup at the top of the GC standings from the GC. Um, we had Joao Almeida, I think, was leading last time we did a podcast. Uh, and then he lost his lead. Wilco Kelderman took over the lead, but in doing so, he was already looking like he might be lacking something. Uh, and then Jai Hindley and Teo Gegenhart emerged as the two top contenders for this race uh, over the final three days. Uh, it was very... Yeah, a lot, a lot of changes in a, in a very short period of time. Uh, and Hindley and Gegenhart rode into the final TT on the same time. Uh, so a one-second difference in the TT was really all you needed to win the race. Uh, and Teo Gegenhart did a little better than that. He, he got uh, 39 seconds, actually, over Jai Hindley to take the win, his first ever Grand Tour, his first ever pro-stage victory, pro-stage race uh, victory. So not not a Catalonia, not a you know Tour de Suisse. His first ever pro-stage race win is... Uh, Giro d'Italia, which is pretty good. Pretty amazing. Abby, you know Teo pretty well, right? Tell us about Teo. Oh, man, he's just he's just a phenomenal human. I mean, he's so down to earth. He's really, really humble. He always gives me a hug whenever I see him. But that, I mean, I know him pretty relatively well. But, like, he'll also always hug my mom when he sees her. And he doesn't know my mom. Like, they had dinner one time at Pizzeria Locale. But other than that, like, um, but he's just that type of kid. He's just, he's incredibly nice. And I think for him, he's been kind of um, claimed to be this great GC hope for the UK for quite a long time. And then in the last couple years, he's kind of fallen to the wayside with Bernal and Thomas and all the other GC riders that Ineos has and he kind of got pushed into this domestique role and the thing about Teo is he is just so happy to do that like the kid is just over the moon to ride for Bernal and and this is just oh man it's amazing it's so amazing because He's been in the sport for quite a while, and he he came through a U.S. team. He came through um, Action Hagen's Berman, and he's kind of just had this really interesting um, run in his career. And and after the Vuelta last year, for him to come back and win the Giro this year, and especially on the in the situation where, like, he came in fully as a sport rider. I don't know. It, he's awesome. He's so awesome. I really can't put it into words. <laughs> a worthy Giro d'Italia winner. I think all of us are super excited for Teo. Uh, I told this story last week, but like he's the only rider I think I've ever encountered who thanked me for interviewing them at the end of a bike race. That's just who he is. He's just a really humble, really nice guy. And 
I yeah, I think the entire peloton. This is one of those. This is one of those wins that the entire peloton is behind. Uh, I, you know, we were supposed to have Roubaix last weekend. The other one that that comes to mind immediately is like when Matt Heyman won Roubaix. Right? He's just one of those guys who's has no enemies in the peloton, at least not that we know of. Uh, and I think that that's pretty rare, really. Right? I mean, you're talking about very competitive sports people, athletes who have maybe contentious relationships a lot of the time. Uh, you know, have their friends and their enemies in the Peloton. This is one of those guys that that really only ha- seems to have friends in the Peloton, like Matt Heyman, where you know Matt Heyman crossed the line at Roubaix, and Tom Boonen was just ecstatic for him. And it's exactly the same thing with with Teo winning this bike race. I don't know. Surely someone in the Peloton is agoraphobic, uh, agoraphobic or something, and doesn't like being hugged. And that person might not like Teo. Or maybe someone in the Peloton has something against gingers. I was about to say that. What's the what's the phobia That's why of nobody gingers? Nobody ever talks to me. Oh, now I get it. Oh. <laughs> what's the ginger phobia? It's another thing for you to look up over there, Dane. You got the Google. Yeah. I was going to say depress me gingivitis, but that's a, a teeth problem, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but I reckon there is somebody that doesn't like him in the Peloton now. That gentleman who came second, Hindley, he's got to be not too happy with it. With uh, Teo, yeah, but I, well, at the same time, I give him a hug afterwards. It's fine. Yeah, at the same time, I think Jay was probably Jai. Is it Jai, Jay, Jai, Jai, Jai. At the same time, I think Jai is probably. I don't know. It, it was probably hurt a lot in the moments afterward, right? But at the same time, I bet he steps back and and realizes that he's just done something really amazing as well. Uh, we've got a story up about Jai on the on the website right now. It's great uh, and. You know, he's another super, super young rider. Kind of came out of nowhere. Has sort of shown that he had the talent in there somewhere, but has not really been given the opportunity. And for him to be second at the Giro, for him to be tied going into the final stage, like that's still an amazing, amazing ride. I want to talk about the two teams at the top here. So first, let's talk Ineos because Froome is leaving the team. But now, even with Froome gone... They still have this huge pile of Grand Tour contenders, right? They just added another one. I want to talk about Ineos next year. Is Teo going to be given now a, 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 an opportunity at some of these races? Or is he still behind Bernal and Garrett Thomas? Like, What does Ineos look like for, for 2021 now? So I think it's worth pointing out, actually, at, at this juncture, as far as we know, Gegenhardt has not signed next year, but he is expected to sign with Ineos. He's expected to renew with the team. But... It's not a done deal, uh, as far as we know right now. They haven't announced. So who knows? Maybe he'll end up at Movistar next year. Uh, but he, he probably is sticking with the team, as far as we know. Um, Ineos is probably wishing that they'd signed him two months yeah, ago I think that, at this that's, point. Yeah, <laughs> They're going to have to slap a couple more zeros onto that contract. <laughs> yeah, but they've got a little bit more money now that they don't have to pay Chris Froome. Uh, but in answer to your question, I, I still think he's probably, well, he's certainly still behind Bernal. Uh, I, I think that the field at this Giro is going to make uh, Brailsford think a lot because the other riders on this team who have kind of proven themselves as, as GC guys, who have proven themselves as Grand Tour contenders, uh, they've done it against fields that were uh, more Tour caliber. And with this with this race, with this Giro, uh, not to take anything away from what Teo did because it was incredible. And the, and the way that he did it after being a domestique for the first week. I mean, that that's not easy. He was not riding for his own ambitions early on as much as he would have been, obviously. He didn't go out and intentionally lose time, but um, 
That said, if you look at the riders he beat, it's not riders who are going to be contending for the Tour de France. And so if I'm Dave Brailsford, I don't know that I'm going to put Teo Gegenhardt in the hierarchy above a rider who has already won the Tour de France above that field. Uh, the question mark for me is kind of Garen Thomas, just because with, with his age, you're starting to, you're, he's a rider who's probably starting to be on the on the downslope, and at some point, Gegenhardt, who's nine years younger, uh, is is going to overtake him. It's just, is that going to happen this year, next year? Who knows? I think I think another point to make is we were talking about it in a previous podcast about uh, nationality with teams and with Ineos. It is very much and always has been a team based around British riders winning Grand Tours and whether they needed to still have a British rider winning a Grand Tour to keep that fan base there that they've built up. Um, I think if I remember rightly, we were saying it's a, a case now of do, do they need to? And we were like, probably not. But after listening to uh, the British radio the past 24 hours, because even though I live in France, I do listen to the BBC still, I'm amazed at how much coverage the Giro winners had. Um, and I listened to one of the smaller uh, BBC radio stations, BBC Six Music, which is, yeah, to, to hear them on the hour a few times yesterday and this morning talk about his win just showed you how much a British win means to the British media, even at the Giro, when usually it's... Yeah, and I think as a result... we. Right. I think I think as a result we may see you know, we may see Teo given more sort of higher profile opportunities than we would have otherwise. I do agree that he's still probably sort of behind in the pecking order behind Bernal certainly and possibly still Garrett Thomas. Uh but you know, give him a shot at the Vuelta. Give him another shot at the Giro. You know, I don't think he's gonna come in as the leader for the Tour de France, nor do I think, frankly, at this point in his career he could have could win it a, a competitive Tour de France, right? There is no question that there is a, a difference between the field at the Tour this year and the field at the Giro this year. That's that's obvious. The the Giro itself kind of got the the unlucky, not unlucky, the the worst of the three slots for the Grand Tours, right? No huge surprise there. It's the only non-ASO Grand Tour. And as a result, the you know the field is just not quite at the same caliber as it would be at the Tour de France. Nonetheless, Teo's still really young, and I, I think absolutely... Ineos is going to be, and Brailsford is going to be looking at him as a rider who in three years is somebody who could lead this team and could very likely go on to win lots more Grand Tours at some point. I I think the fact that Ineos slash, you know, Team Sky from the very beginning has backed Teo and, and taken the time to develop Teo versus like some other riders like Bernal, they pick him up and he's immediately you know, thrown into the tour, not as the favorite to win, but he, he still rode the tour, what, his first year with with Sky. And the difference between Bernal and Teo is that they signed Teo as a stagiaire in 2015, I'm pretty, I think, to do the Japan Cup. And then they, they picked him up a year later and they've been kind of fostering him as like that one of their best riders ever since, um, kind of like building him up year to year. So I think that's one of the big differences between between him and Bernal is that they'll have seen what he did at this Giro and they'll that will just bring so much confidence to the program and to the young riders on the program and to Teo himself for what he can do in the future because now he knows he can win a Grand Tour. And he didn't know that going into this Grand Tour, obviously. But I think it's more likely, I mean, I feel like I would not be surprised to see him 
be Bernal's backup at the tour next year. I really, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah, they have a great relationship as well. Uh, you know, he had a very, he had a very traditional development trajectory. Teo did, right? The fact that he was on Action Hagen's Berman for for a number of years, like that team has been very successful at moving riders into the World Tour. But it also, uh, they're very, they're very, they're very careful over there. They don't push riders into the World Tour too early. They try to hang on to them until they're pretty much out of their U twenty three ranks. They spend a lot of time developing these riders and making sure that they're they're a developed as as athletes, but also developed as people. Uh, you know, I think a number of you have probably met. Uh, some of the folks behind that team, people like Reed McAlvin, who I don't think is with, is there anymore, Axel Merckx, but like Reed, who was a Swanee there for a long time, and just sort of general Swanee isn't even even really the right term for him. Um, he was very involved in in you know finding young riders, developing young riders, turning these these athletes into like adults that could actually go handle all of this. That actually makes me feel much better about Teo's future than a rider like Bernal who showed up, was chucked in the deep end because he had the talent, and did quite well, obviously, last year, but then struggled this year. And this is this, this returns to the topic that we were talking about earlier of all these young riders showing up and being so good. And we know they're so good because we have their their power output. But I think that this this Giro is a perfect example of the other way, of the of the way that it was done for a very long time and taking riders more slowly through the ranks, making sure that they're fully ready, not just physically, but also mentally and emotionally for, you know, the stage that Teo has just been thrust upon in, in the last 24 hours. So I think there's something, I think there's something to be said for that. And as a side note, rumors, 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 sounds like that action Huggins Berman team might be okay for next year. We, that's what we're hearing. So Fingers crossed that that is the case because that is a phenomenal program, and the people behind it, you know, they're, they're turning out riders like Teo Gegenhart, which is fantastic. If it's not saved for next year, there needs to be questions asked. There needs to be um, bigger teams putting their hands in their pocket and building up a development squad like that one because it, this this team's just churned out numerous riders you just look at yeah, the Giro this year and it's I think it's had like nine stage wins in total for, from riders from that team or have been through that team something crazy like that in fact I wanted to call up an individual who's probably as responsible as anybody for where Teo is right now Reed McAlvin who as I said before is uh technically like the Swanier at, at Action Huggins Bourbon, but is much, much, much more than that and has dealt with not a numerous riders as they're coming up through the ranks and Teo since he was like uh, 18, 19 years old. So let's chat with Reed. Can you, uh, can you tell me how long you've known Teo for? Let's start there. Yes. Um, so I met Teo in 2013 on facebook um you know typical older man younger boy type of relationship where i just reach out blindly to a uh, a teenager and ask him if he wants to move to america and let me do his laundry um so uh yeah so yeah so teo was a, a promising junior um this is before his roubaix podium and uh through the power of facebook i reached out to him and said hey you know you look like you might be the real deal. We like British kids. We had great luck with Alex Dowsett. 
Um, might you be interested? And he was already like, oh yeah, man, I already plan on riding for your team, you know? Um, in that Teo way of saying things, um, right. like it was not quite a foregone conclusion, but it was basically a foregone conclusion. <laughs> and then, um, and then had a really good conversation with him. And then, um, I think three weeks later, a couple weeks later, he had that junior Roubaix podium, which yep. obviously put him on a little more on the radar of, uh, some of the, um, you know, agents and teams. And then from there, I think he started talking to Corso, his agency, Joao Carrera and Ken yep. Summer. And then, um, and then Axel shortly after. And that was right around the time where I was finishing up my first stint with Axel and getting ready to do the next year is when I decided to go move with uh, uh, Finney to Europe. Um, so kind of helped with that transition um, a little bit. And then, you know, then that was that um, last year, Von Traeger, was his first year on the team with their the red and white kit um you know and as a neo he was selected for tour of california which is not easy on a team where we had a bunch of guys trying to move up to the world tour that were fourth years and he was a first year so that said a lot you know i talk to like coaches and stuff all the time and people that mm-hmm. deal with people that deal with riders power numbers and what their physiology is and things like that and you're not that you you deal with the other side of of bike riders you deal with with sort of who they are as people and and with with development of a essentially a, a not a child but a teenager into right. in, into an adult can you tell me a little bit about sort of teo's teo's pathway from that perspective like what was he like when he first showed up and then what was yeah. he like when you sent him off into the world <laughs> yeah so he was the same in a lot of ways he's like i said he's very uh headstrong and, and knows where he wants and knows the direction he wants to go in. Um, and he, and he has that, has that, you know, which I think a lot of the greats do Jasper Stoyven's another one that you just knew. I was like, the first time I met this kid, I was like, this kid's going to win big things. Yeah. You know? Um, and not saying I ever thought Teo would win the Giro or, but that whole, but you just knew he was going to be at worst case scenario. He was going to be an 18 year professional that every team that ever signed him was going to want to re-sign him. And, and anytime he was up for a contract, five teams would approach him because right. of his, just the way he took stuff. And he was really good. So he was, you know, super pro and he's a super cycling dork, which I really appreciate because I'm a mm-hmm. super cycling dork. Like I wrote this on Twitter a few days ago about how one, we once had like a 40 minute conversation about one stage in a 2.2 race in Croatia about the top 10 and how <laughs> Teo thought they did versus where he thought they should have done and where they, there would be. And who's going to make it and who's not going to. And that's how, and that's how his mind works with that kind of stuff. He's, he's a fan of the sport. You know, mm. he would get mad at me when I'd make him wear his helmet to sign-ins to races because it, you know, it messed with the the picture because he wanted to have his peaked cap on and look good. And I'd be like, that's awesome. Now put your helmet over your peaked cap and look how cool that'll look, you know? And he would argue with me, he'd put it on and then he'd unclip it and then ride 50 feet and take it off. And then I'd yell at him and I'd talk him about head injuries and I would work with traumatic brain injuries and all that. And he'd, all right. And he'd begrudgingly do it. And then, um, yeah, I mean, that's just Teo. And he would, you know, he was, he would, he would rally the boys, even as a, you know, first year, second year, whatever, would just lead from the front. You told to do something and he would just, if I had to repeat it twice, you know, he would just go, guys, it's not that hard. Just put your fucking laundry in the bag and drop it in the in the thing you know it's you know it's like and he was and he was the first to say thank you to everybody 
that's what I mean. Like top to bottom is, you know, his parents really raised him well. His mom is very lovely. I met his father briefly. His uh, younger brother Bede is also just, just a champion, uh, wonderful guy. And, and he just, he's, he's super passionate about the sport and he cares about other people and he brings other people up and he always used to name drop and we'd make fun of him, but it, he meant it in just the best way. Like he'd be like, you know, my mate, this guy and this guy. And he wasn't trying to say like he rode with Bradley Wiggins or he rode with whoever. It'd be just an average pro that he knew in, in Girona or whatever. And it was just really cool. Cause a lot of the guys go like, you know, like the first time they get to ride near Cancellara or whoever, you know, they're like, oh, here's me in Cancellara. <laughs> and Taylor was like, oh, this is me mate, Dan Craven. And if you know Dan, Dan is oh, amazing. Yeah. And Dan is just amazing. And I can't say enough good things about the guy, but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't going to win Perry roubaix or, or the Giro or whatever, but Teo respected him. It was who he was and treated him just like, you know, like a top notch pro. And that's what I think I wish more of these kids did with some of the stuff. They get a little, uh, you know, idolizing the big guys, but don't realize how hard it is just to get bottles and jackets every day. Mm. You know, we were talking, uh, again, elsewhere in the podcast about sort of like development pipelines and how a lot of, a lot of young riders have sort of burst onto the scene, right? We've, we've, we've yep. got Tade, we've got Bernal, we've got, uh, you know, Venipole. The, the action way is somewhat different in that you held on to riders quite yep. for, for, for sort of basically as long as you could. Uh, yep. You know, sometimes riders would leave before the end of their U23s, but often they would stick around even if they could have left earlier. They decided yes. not Teo's to. Teo's one of those as well. Teo had offers before basically each year mm -hmm. kind of and but yeah i just told him about you know and axel cautioned him and everybody else involved cautioned his agents are amazing ken and joao about mm -hmm. yeah it seems great but it's not going to hurt to be one more year at this level and win some races you know you might not win any races for five years or 10 years or 15 years you know yeah. um but yeah we encourage the kids because i mean unless you're just an absolute phenom freak uh like a uh, remco or or uh, Mr. Pochikar, uh, kind of thing. Like it's, it's a lot. And the level you're at when you move up all of a sudden, like everybody's training well and everybody's eating well and everybody's doing all the right stuff, but you're, you're going to be that much better. It's right. yeah. So yeah, we try to hold on to them as long as we logically can, um, in regards to that, um, just because you're just going to get more durable, um, you know, opportunities going to open up and other things is sometimes opportunities look great, but you know, you're flattered when someone offers you a job at any level, then, you know, between Axel's experience and, and coasts and some of the other people on the team, it's like, uh, actually that team's going to do this, this, and this to you. Um, and you're right. going to be blown out in two years. And then you're going to be struggling to find a job when you really would just be here and finishing U23 and going out on top. I imagine that you think that he's probably be, like well served by that, right? I mean, he's he's oh, just a thousand won, percent. Yeah, he's just won a Giro d'Italia, you know. And I, I'm thinking specifically of Bernal, who who we don't really know what happened this summer at Tour de France, but you know, didn't right. appear to be at his best. And and a pretty good guess is that he has had a lot to deal with since he won the Tour de France and became the first Colombian to win the Tour de France and all of the things right. that come with that. And it it sort of brought back up this topic of like, well, you know, are these young riders sort of fully prepared? If they are, if they're chucked straight into it like this. Right. And that's it. And that's what we try to prepare them for. And we prepare them for the good and their bad. You know, we tell them like, you know, the analogy I always use with the kids is that they're a water bottle. 
And what do you do when you're done with the water bottle in a race? Chuck it. Well, you know, you take it nicely back to the car, Kaylee, and you give it to your director so it can be recycled. But, but right, yes, you chuck it. No, you chuck it. So you're a water bottle and you're a U23 and you're you're the kid and you just got second in Liège, Bastogne, Liège and blah, 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 blah. And you got these numbers and, oh, my God, we want you and this and that and everything. And then all of a sudden you get there and you're doing the first big volume training camp of your life. Uh, and then your knee goes bad. Right. So now you're off the spring schedule. And then. Well, now, I mean, the tour is in a month. We can't put you in any the Dauphiné, right? So we got to put you in this and we got to do that. And then next thing you know, your whole first season's gone and you've got 26 days of racing. Oop, right. last year, your contract. What do you got? You know, and then you crash and break your collarbone and Perry Nice and then come back summer. Huh? Next thing you know, your contract's down by, you know, 50%, 70%. And yeah, we'll extend you for a year. Rough. And it can go the other way too, obviously. But what I'm what but we prepare them for that. Just little tiny things that can sort of totally derail a rider in the yep. in the early stages of their career because they're not really gonna get the benefit of the doubt, right? They're not gonna get directors saying, Well, we know you can still do it. It's like you either do it or you don't, right? Yeah. And and a lot of the stuff, even the physiologists and stuff on the team, a lot of them have are incredible in, in background, but at the same time, guys are expected to do the load. So right. you sign for a team. And they don't care. You know, you go back to, say, Dombrowski, even with Sky or whatever, and he's this phenom and, you know, wins the baby Giro. And then they put him on Sky and they're just like, hey, you're doing a 31 hour week this week going right. into Perry Nice. And he's like, what's that? You know, <laughs> and right. like, uh, thir- did you did you say 30? And <laughs> and then all of a sudden these guys are like, well, why are you tired, bud? You know, like, what's going on? We thought you were you, you were a good a good rider. And. And there's all those factors you just have to uh, account adjust for, you know? Um, and that's the, some of the stuff we talk about. We spend hundreds of hours talking about stuff like that. Do you have any embarrassing Teo stories that you can tell? Oh, embarrassing Teo stories? Yeah. No, nah, he's a good kid. He doesn't mess around too much. He's been in love for a long time with Hannah Barnes. Yeah. And, and uh, he's real serious about the sport. He doesn't get crazy uh at all unfortunately we actually just went through this i I talked to rohan dennis a lot and uh we were trying to uh make a meme up for almeida for the giro Uh and i like wrote to everybody i wrote to everybody on the team all the portuguese mafia that i know everybody like hey give me some embarrassing wow stuff so we can make a meme of them and like literally every guy got back to me and they're like we got nothing man (laughs) he plays Fortnite and lives with his mom like i I don't know what else other than that i don't know what else to tell you that's embarrassing you know about Teo's kind of the same thing well yeah Teo's just super pro he just you know lives with Hannah they're in they're in love he I mean he I mean this is how dialed the kid is I mean he moved to Girona on his own dime before he had like a pro contract you know just to be in it and see what it takes and and like adapt where he could have lived with his mom in London and not trained as good or moved to Boulder and I could have found him host housing or whatever but he wanted to do it 100% right Mm -hmm. Um, so he had no excuses because that's his thing too he just doesn't want to ever he never half-assed something and then go, well, you know, I mean, I was trapped in Andorra and had to ride the trainer four hours a day. That's why I wasn't good for this race. He was trapped in Andorra and rode the trainer four hours a day and he just won a goddamn Giro, you know, like that's pretty chaos. incredible. Yeah. Pretty yeah. Incredible. It's unbelievable if you think about it. I mean, cause I know a lot of the tour guys were doing mini training camps outside and race simulations, all, all that kind of stuff, you know, with, with their, their, you know, training partners and their coaches and all that stuff. And, yeah, he did it from a cabin. So, 
but no, I wish I had, I mean, Teo's, he's a funny kid. He, he really likes messing with people. He would like, we had a mechanic or a photographer, Davey Wilson, amazing photographer does the action photos and, and, uh, Teo would always just sneak up on him and scare him all the time. <laughs> Cause Davey's like super jumpy. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So we call it ghosting him. Like, cause you, you would walk the same speed behind somebody and you know, like not let them know you were there. And then they would stop and you'd be like, Davey, what are you doing? Davey's like, ah! almost dropped his $5,000 Lika or whatever, you know? But that's about the meanest thing. I mean, he would, he would lift everybody up. He would talk to everybody online. Uh, one of the best, one of the best photos I've ever seen in my entire life in the sport is him and Ruben um, behind the tent that I saw somewhere yesterday. Um, both with the, jer- you know, the jerseys on kind of hugging each other. Cause those two fought like cats and dogs when they're on the team together. Cause mm-hmm. Teo is very, opinionated and Ruben is very passion based, mm. you know, and those two, and that doesn't necessarily, uh, work sometimes, you know? Yep. Right. So, cause R- Ruben's the guy is that Latin mentality. Like, fuck man, this guy touched my bars. I was like, fuck you. I'll kill your mother. <laughs> you know? And the tail's like, you can't say you're gonna fuck his mother, you know? And like, and then they'd be like, don't tell me what to say. And they'd be arguing like one seat behind me in the sprinter van. I'd be like, guys, 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 yeah. Reed, thank you so much. We just yes, wanted sir. a little. We want a little insight into who this guy was, and I figured you'd be the guy to call. So yeah, yeah. I hope that helped. He's I, he's amazing. I really appreciate the time. Okay. Good luck with your PhD and uh, everything else you got going on. Thanks, man. Talk to you soon. Last little thought on this, you know. Shadi, you said earlier that that there needs to be questions asked if if Action Huggins Berman disappears because it is one of the most effective devel- development teams out there. And frankly, World Tour teams have not done a fantastic job of development of help, of helping with development. You know, if you look at the Premier League, they've all got development teams. They've all got U twenty three teams. Uh, the, the the minor leagues in in American baseball is another great example of like a really finely tuned development system. Cycling doesn't necessarily have that, and I do think that some of these big teams need to step up. Abby, you just you proposed this uh, when we were off mic. You know, what if what if Ineos stepped in and said we'll fund action? How fantastic would that be, right? I mean, and for a couple million bucks, you could do it. It's it's not a huge investment, particularly for a team like Ineos. It's you know, it's one high profile rider on a team that seems to have basically unlimited budget. I do think that you know these big teams with big budgets do need to step up at some point, and it can work in their favor too, right? I mean, I would rather see Ineos throw you know Froome's ex salary at Action Hagen's Berman and have them stick around for a lot longer and keep developing riders the way they should they have been than see them start a women's team, for example. That's interesting. And it's it's not just it's not just that team. If you look at the I'm just coming from a British perspective at the moment. You look at the Brit riders who have been in Grand Tours, well, the Vuelta and the Giro at the moment. Hugh Carf is lying second as we record this at the Vuelta. He's come through JTL Condor, who have also delivered a lot of good riders to the pro ranks previously and went belly up uh, two, three years ago. That was pros- that was like the UK version of Axel's Turk. 
team. The same with uh, the Wiggins team. That didn't last too long, but it did deliver a lot of good riders there as well, like James Knox, who's lying, who finished fourteenth at the the, uh, the the Giro. And you've got to say, why aren't teams, bigger teams, looking at these smaller teams and joining forces? You have it in Belgium. You like you've got the the Lotto feeder team. When I was there, it was uh, Lotto de Vitamon, and they delivered riders to the pro ranks not just to lotto but to quick step year after year or the ag to our feeder team that that friend of the podcast joe leverick is is on was on this season right i mean that's another perfect example of a team that has done a pretty good job of, of moving riders through the ranks i mean roman bardet came in uh, on that squad ended up moving up to the, the the main team and and you know became a hero of France, right? I mean, that, that that's the whole idea. And you can't expect every single one of these development riders to turn into a Roman Bardet. But, you know, if you get if you get one in 20 that makes, you know, even makes it into the World Tour, one in 50 that is a star, you know, you can have a dramatic impact on the sport as, as a whole. And I don't think that World Tour teams are doing enough right now because it really isn't that expensive to run these U23 teams in the relative sense. It is a lot of money, but it's not not in a relative sense, not not compared to how much, you know, these teams are spending on, on their World Tour rosters. And it's totally possible to have a World Tour team, a development team, and a women's team. I want to move on from this one. We will discuss this again at a later date. Uh... We loved a good development team, and I think that this is one of those topics we can return to once the racing season's wrapped up a little bit and, and look at the ways that, that professional cycling could uh, improve itself. But I have a final question related to the Giro before we move on to the Vuelta and other things. Are time trials good now? Time trials are always good. I used... No, no, not true. Sometimes they are terrible. <laughs> I, I traditionally, historically have not been a massive fan of the time trial although i do like them more when they're stuck right at the end of a grand tour but now we're, we're two for two now two grand tours for two in 2020 that were decided by fantastically exciting tts a why b is this going to continue c have we just had the wool thrown over our eyes because in fact tts are still garbage and we should go back to assuming that they will be henceforth so uh, i'm of the opinion that you always need at least one tt to inspire the climbers to get to work because if you don't then generally speaking just the best climber will dominate the race and nobody else will attack him and that's the it that's it there's that's the end of the story whereas if you have at least one time trial all the climbers have to attack or else tom dumoulin will win the race uh or chris room or gary thomas or whoever whoever the big time trial guy uh is in the race the Giro or the Tour needs that that TT to make the other climbers, you know, work. And in, th in this particular Tour, we had a really close GC battle where it was kind of like the Tour de France, where for much of the race, there really wasn't that much uh, action among the very top riders. There were, there were a lot of unhappy people on Twitter, a lot of unhappy fans the first two and a half weeks even, where there just wasn't a whole lot of action on the big climbs in this race. It was a slow burn Giro, it very slow, slow burn, traditional. Just like the Tour de France. Yeah, it felt like tours of years past. I will say. Yeah, it was. It was not. It was not the the 2019 Tour de France. It was not just uh, all these climbs early and. Yeah, we had Joao Almeida, which was really exciting to see a, a ride that we didn't expect to see up there. But there wasn't a lot of action until the very last few days, and because of that, the, the thing was still really close heading into that final TT. 
And thanks to the final TT, we actually had a pretty entertaining finale. If we, I think we need to keep the TT short as well. Short, technical, and if you're going to have a team TT, because I do love a team TT, you've got to have that technical and make sure it's on a wet day. <laughs> The the late the late race TT is like the most exciting one because a, a Grand Tour is a race of time, and it ends with time. A TT is essentially like the most boiled down version of a race against time. So I feel like it ha- there has to be TTs and Grand Tours just because of what the nature of a Grand Tour is. And what I liked about yesterday as well it it wasn't a a procession like the Tour de France on the last day. It was nice to actually have action going into the last day as well. And you could you you could have that on any race, even if there's a, a minute difference at the on the GC going into the into the day. I think the key here is balance. You know, when we're talking about whether TTs add or, or detract from uh, the sort of the quality of a of a Grand Tour, and by quality I mean basically how entertained we are because this is entertainment. That's what sport is. Uh, it needs to be in balance. And I think that that's it, a lot of the TTs, and maybe this is the, a function of the riders that were at the top of the sport at the time, but over the last decade, TTs have f- felt very, they felt like they tamped down racing, right? Because it, it, it was a chance for the already dominant rider to be even more dominant. And I'm talking Wiggins and Froome. Uh, whereas in the, to, to the two Grand Tours this year, in the Tour and the Giro, it's felt more like the time trials were... Uh, they were more of an uh, of an outlier within the race, and we still were mostly having you know TT battles between riders who we would think of as climbers, and I think that that's what made them so good. And and, and in addition, the, just the time trial courses and routes are really interesting. Final time trial at the Tour de France was really just interesting, right? You had this big flat thirty k, six k up a mountain. Like, I think that's that's the sort of thing that needs to happen a little bit more often when they're when they're doing route selection for grand tour time trials to make sure that it's not just that it, that it keeps everything in balance that the the available time in a time trial you know is is roughly equivalent to the available time sort of elsewhere in the race or maybe even a little bit less anyway time trials are are, are good they were good they were good this year we'll give them we'll give them a nine out of ten I spent more time yelling at my television during time trials this year than any other type of stage. So I, I think that's that says everything we need to know. Before we move on to the Vuelta, we must talk Sunweb. Second and third overall. Incredible performance. Aussies up at the top. I know we have a lot of Aussie listeners out there who will be exceptionally excited for Jai Henley. What's up with this team this year? I mean, they were they were phenomenal at the Tour de France. They were the stage hunting team of the Tour. They they made, frankly, all the other stage hunting teams at the Tour look foolish in how a strong they were and how b intelligent they were. And then at the Giro, they they turn into a GC team with with two riders on the podium. What, what's going on at Sunweb right now? I think they've, they've always been a team that we've seen do a great job with developing talent. And there have been seven or eight riders who are, who are big names now that came through that program. Uh, and Hindley is a rider who had some really strong results as an under-23 rider, uh, went to the Sunweb team starting in 2018, has been kind of behind the scenes there, uh, done a couple of nice things. I, mean, I think he was up on the podium at the Tour of Poland. He had a nice start to this season, 
um, over at the uh, Herald Sun Tour. So we know they can develop young talent. Uh, and through the course of this race, uh, they did a nice job with keeping two guys in contention. Kelderman was the was the obvious favorite for them, just because he's a rider who's been on Grand Tour podium, or has been in Grand Tour top tens a bunch in his career. Um, but Hindley did again, sort of like Gegenhardt, did a nice job of not intentionally losing time. And then as things got really uh, hectic towards the end of the race, they made a pretty interesting call to uh, let Hindley do his thing and, and not try to help Wilco Kelderman, which I thought was a really good call because you can't do a whole lot to help a teammate struggling on a steep climb. Uh, and ended up with two riders on the podium. They obviously didn't win the race. Uh, but it was just another example of them doing a great job of developing young talent. They're losing Kelderman next year, which is really interesting. Uh, but they've probably got to be pretty ecstatic to have found uh, Hindley, who actually finished ahead of Kelderman. And you know, they, they've spent some time with Kelderman, and, and they know what he's capable of. And they also probably know at this point that, generally speaking, he tends to kind of fade in the third week of a Grand Tour, which is exactly what happened here. Uh, so I think they got to be pretty pleased with the way that Hindley's come along, and it's not that big of a surprise. Now the question is just, can they hold on to him? Because so many of their young riders tend to leave uh, after a few years with that team. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Is The, the interesting thing is they, they're really good at identifying talent and developing talent, and they're not good at keeping it. And that could be a budget problem, frankly. We don't know the, the financials uh, of the team. But yeah, something goes goes on at that team where once you've been there for three or four years and you sort of found your niche and you and you know how good you're going to be, you go elsewhere, and that's happened over and over and over again. And it's it's interesting because I feel like most most teams that are good at developing talent are generally pretty good at hanging on to it. Uh, otherwise, what's the point of developing it if you just lose it? Because it's not like it's not like other sports where if you lose. A, an athlete you probably got bought out and you get a bunch of money that's pretty rare that's the androni giacatoli you know uh gianni savio style where he goes and finds these brilliant young riders in, in south america and and brings them to europe and then sells them to to date brailsford for huge amounts of money that's not what sunweb is doing so they're just they're just spending all this time and effort and money developing riders and then losing them so I think we need to get someone on, from Sunweb on the phone at some point in the next couple of weeks and ask some of these questions. We had a request from a Velo Club member to get uh, a Sunweb coach on the line. We didn't have time before today's episode, but we'll we'll work on that. We have we have questions for Sunweb. I've only had a chance to chat to a few of the people on Sunweb this year at the at the tour, and then uh, yeah, just at the tour this year. Oh, and the tour down under as well. Um, and it does feel like the backroom staffs had a bit of a change up as well over the past couple of years it definitely feels a different team to what it was sort of five years ago in its infrastructure so i'm wondering that's obviously got to have a an effect on the team the way it's organized the way it's run the riders they've got going on and here we are if you want a, a little bit of gossip i've heard that um that Bardet fella is obviously going from ag to our over to sunweb next year He's taking zero staff with him. Usually a big rider like that will take, yeah, a mechanic they like, coach they like, somebody like that. But, yeah, from word on the street here in um, Annecy, yeah, he's taking nobody with him, which is a bit of a a big two fingers up to AG2R, I would have said. A peace sign, Dave? That seems friendly. It depends what way round it is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's enough Giro, enough Ineos, enough Sunweb. Let's go to Spain. Let's talk Vuelta. Dane, where do we stand as of Monday, October 26th? 
what's going on at the Vuelta. Yeah, the GC picture is uh, is Richard Carapaz leading the race in red with uh, Hugh Carthy in second. So British fans have to be happy about that. Dan Martin, very popular rider in third. And Primoz Roglic had dropped down to fourth uh, after the sixth stage to Aramon Formigal, which uh, which happened because they had to cancel the, the Col du Tourmalet. Uh, much like the Giro, they, they couldn't go into France as originally planned, so they made a, a late change. And impressively, they, they planned a stage to Formigal like, with a week to go. Uh, and it, it, yeah, it was great. It was a great finale. We saw we saw some changes in the GC. This has been a fantastic race so far. The first week of the Vuelta has been awesome, uh, which is kind of what happens when you get actual GC stages early in a race. Uh, and the riders have delivered. They've they've really gone at it. And we've seen we've seen the the big names up there most of the days of this race. Uh, and and yeah, I, I would if you if you've not been watching the Vuelta because you only have time to watch two Grand Tours, uh, be happy that you can now watch because it's been it's been great so far. Uh, Car Pass looks really impressive. Jumbo Visma has a really strong team here. So it's a lot like the Tour de France where you've got Roglic ahead of a strong team. Sepkus is doing great. Uh, they've got Tom Dumoulin here. Uh, but now they've got to you know, kind of cope with Carapaz leading the race and he's climbing very well. Uh, so yeah, we'll see what happens. Uh, much like we were talking about with the Giro, there is a time trial in this race. So if you're Carapaz, you probably have to gain a lot of time ahead of that time trial because you know Primoz Roglic is going to do very well in it. So it's going to be exciting because that's what time trials do. They make races good. Uh, so hopefully over the next ra- uh, the next week or so of the race, we're going to see a lot more attacking like we've seen so far. Uh, yeah. Oh, yesterday's stage was superb. Absolutely love yesterday. Filthy weather. My, I, like, I like to call him my man, but I don't really know him that way. We just got mates in common and train on the same roads back home. Did the same races. Hugh Carthy. Looking awesome. It like his climbing style isn't exactly elegant, but he gets the job done. Um and yeah, just see him having a dig in nice and deep before the finishing line just to get a couple of seconds there, a couple of seconds there, definitely shows that is is up for it. And hey look, the weather's only gonna get worse from here on in. He's from the northwest of the UK. He knows how to handle a crappy bit of weather, doesn't he? <laughs> Better than pretty much Yesterday anybody. Yesterday was like a summer's yeah. day for us up in the northwest. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's leave the Vuelta there. We'll we'll obviously chat more Vuelta next week. Very quickly, Depana happened. What do we have to say about it? Pretty much the only thing I have to say about Depana is that um, it was the last one day of the year. And the last women's world tour one day of the year. And it was the last race for Bowles Dolmens as they are or have been for many, many years. So I I put together a little photograph gallery slash piece on the site um, earlier in the week about about that. And yeah, I think the only reason to bring up Depana is Amy Peters almost won it. She was relegated for diverting her her sprint line, but Bowles Dolmens as sponsors of that team and obviously the team will keep going as SD works next year but Bowles Dolmens the two sponsors who came into the team really early on uh, it started as just Dolmens Landscaping and then Bowles joined two years later um, but they've they really kind of set the stage for building women's cycling to be what it is they've like inspired many other teams to to grow and to to really like put effort towards their riders and I think it's worth mentioning that like what they did and and the fact that this was their last time being on a jersey in a women's race yeah super important team 
for women's cycling and obviously like you said not going away but just you know these are two sponsors that have put a lot of money into women's racing and they deserve kudos and credit and the team deserves kudos and credit because yeah they really they sort of pulled women's cycling up from the top if that makes sense versus versus investing in the bottom of it investing in development and sort of pushing you know uh, pushing a sport up from the bottom they took a different tack which was we're going to make the best team in the world and we're going to force everybody to compete with us and it was effective because you know they they pulled a whole bunch of very good riders together they dominated seasons and they forced the entire women's peloton to to get better and to you know further professionalize and i think that they deserve a lot of credit uh for that the team deserves a lot of credit for that and as a result you know the sponsors kudos to them because without the without the cash there without the you know the budget to bring on all those big riders they could not have pulled women's cycling up from the top uh on the men's side real quick before we move on Eve Lampart won the day for uh, Quickstep. I believe that was Takuna Quickstep's only World Tour Classic win this year uh, because of the shortened season. So it was nice to see them kind of close it out with one. And it was a nice ride from, from Lampart, nice team effort from them. Uh, the other big story from that, from the men's race, was Matthew Vanderpool crashing into a ditch and getting a concussion. So hopefully he's able to heal up and uh, end up okay in time for his cyclocross campaign because it was not a pleasant day out for, for Vanderpool. Not really a pleasant day out for anybody. It was really rough, windy weather. I mean, the, the men's race was just blown all over the road and... Uh, it was entertaining to watch. It was kind of like getting Welcome a couple of years ago where you're like, well, I'm glad I'm not out there, but this is fun to watch. I woke up to a text from Tom's that just said, I'm alive. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> All right. That is enough bike racing for us today. I think it's time for an alert. Nerd 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 alert. James, you look like you are freezing cold in your garage there. You, you've been adding layers throughout the entire episode. <laughs> you disappear for like 30 seconds and come back with another jacket on. You look kind of like the Michelin Man over there now. Well, this morning it was uh, 7 degrees Fahrenheit, and my garage is insulated, but not entirely heated exactly. I do have the space heater going. Uh, I do have the space heater going, but um, it takes a while for the space heater to really heat the space up, as it turns out. And it's not there yet. And I'm cold. <laughs> you look really cold. All right. What are we talking about today? We're talking about two, two Ineos soft good items. First, time trial skin suits. And second, Oakley's. Yeah, you were saying just a minute ago that we were done with bike racing. But as it turns out, we are not done talking about bike racing because... Uh, one of the things that uh, bike journalist Michael Hutchinson noticed on Teo Gegenhardt during that final time trial at the Giro was kind of an odd texture to his skin suit, which is interesting because uh, Castelli and um, because Castelli and Endura had both introduced in recent years textured skin suits in an effort to reduce aerodynamic drag on the rider's body and which is important because the rider's body constitutes most of the aero drag in a, in a time trial and the uci has subsequent subsequently banned all those textures because they work as it turns out um Ineos seems to have figured out a little bit of a hack around that however because uh what hutchinson noticed is that yeah uh Teo's skin suit had some texture to it but it wasn't coming from the skin suit itself i mean he was wearing a seemingly you know fairly normal castelli skin suit um but there was definitely like kind of like a waffle texture to it but it was coming from his base layer not the skin suit interesting so wait, wait. 
So like you literally just put a a base layer on that has essentially like a crosshatch kind of pattern, and if the skin suit is thin enough, it has it then has texture. I wonder if the UCI basically. Is how is yeah, the UCI well, going to ban this one? I would have to think that the UCI is going to figure out a way to ban this. And it's kind of funny because, you know, I have a couple of base layers that are very similar to the one that Teo was wearing. I mean, he had a long sleeve version, um, which is quite unusual because why would you need a long sleeve summer edition or summer weight base layer uh, with texture? Hmm, I wonder. Um, <laughs> But uh, so anyway, I have a base layer like that, and it does work really well. It's one of my favorite ones. But the one I have is, you know, full summer weight, you know, sleeveless. Um, why he would have sleeves on it, I, I'm thinking it's for the texture. What we've got to remember as well is that Castelli, apart from being a sponsor of Ineos, are also the official jersey sponsors for the Giro. So I'm guessing someone in the back room, someone at Castelli will have known that, A, they won't be able to supply these bubbly textured skin suits that we saw uh, Froome and Garrett Thomas shoes back in, I think it was at 2018 Tour de France? 2017, I think. Whenever it started in Germany, I forget. Um, wouldn't have been allowed to supply them as official pink jersey, white jersey uh, at the at the Giro. And yeah, got, got around the hack that way. They would have been doing something just for Ineos in the backgrounds. So, yeah, we'll have to do a bit of digging, I reckon. Yeah, I don't know how much time this would have potentially gained for Teo, but my guess is not zero, considering that they, I mean, Ineos is not a, a team to kind of just, you know, toss stuff against the wall and see what sticks. I mean, I'm sure they have tested this configuration and they probably knew very well exactly how much faster it would be and, you know, whether or not it would work. Since we're on Nerd Alert here, can we talk a little bit about why that would make you go faster? It's like a laminar flow golf ball thing, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an aerodynamicist by any means, but yes, I mean, the essentially by by introducing this textured layer, my understanding is you kind of have like this very close boundary layer of turbulent air that essentially smooths out the airflow over the whole area. Um, and that is, I mean, yeah, and like you said, Kelly, it is a sort of like that golf ball effect. Um, by introducing that texture, the whole thing is able to just kind of go through the wind more smoothly and thus faster. I, t I tell you what else is in interesting is it's Endura pulled out of the sport, didn't they? Because of the UCI rules, they, like, they got told off, got a slap wrist saying, you can't be doing things like this, adding bobbly effects to, to jerseys. And they pulled out because they were like, if, if we can't, push a jersey to the best that we want to then what's the point of sponsoring a team so it's really sad that the uca are throttling development like this and keeping sponsors from being within the sport yeah I mean, it was last year endura launched their like drag two zero skin suit that had these like raised silicon rubber chevron things on the on the shoulders and down the sides of the body and I don't remember what they said as far as what the actual aero gains were, but I think it was pretty pretty much a foregone conclusion that it was faster than not having the texture. But yeah, I mean, the UCI subsequently banned that. They have very explicit language in their updated rules as of, I think, April of last year that you know prohibits, you know, I think it was a texture of like a millimeter or more on, on clothing. Um, so, I mean, I, I would have to think that this is very likely going to be the first and last time we see this sort of hack in a skin suit because then I mean, the UCI will figure out a way to crack down on it. 
I don't get why they want to. And I think a perfect case study for this is the hour record. And when the UCI put the Mercs hour record rules in, which is that you had to ride, you know, a traditional round two bike and, and 32 spoke wheels and, all, and no, basically just no TT bike, right? Full on Mercs, drop bars, normal looking bike. When they put those when they put those rules in place, you know, yeah, I, I sort of understand the the, tr- the 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 tradition there and the you know sort of nod to history and things like that. And I and I genuinely, I think I I personally would like to see riders compete on essentially a level playing field te- technologically like that. Just from a from a fan perspective, I think that's interesting. But then sort of reality hits, right? And then you have no reason as a bike sponsor to to help your rider put one of these things together your, your, your teams have no reason, real reason to put these things together and as a result we saw just a complete drought in in our record attempts for what two decades or so uh from like real high profile you know top tier pro our record attempts and then the uci says they're gonna they're gonna lift the rules and all of a sudden we get this big flurry of our record attempts and it's slowed down since then but we still have riders talking about it we still have alex dowsett talking about doing it again and Rowan Dennis is talking about doing it. And, you know, as soon as those rules were lifted, we had Trek get in the game and say, let's do an hour record with Jens Vogt. And, and you know, I, I was at Velenus at the time, and we ran that uh, that hour record attempt live. Like the, the, the TV, the broadcast was live on the site. And there was like, there were tons of people watching it, huge number of, of a huge amount of interest. And as soon as you let the sponsors showcase themselves, they were more willing to put the money in because an hour record attempt is not a cheap thing. They're more rec- more willing to put the money in to support riders who wanted to do it. And as a result, more riders did it. And we, and as fans, we got to watch those riders do it. And it was exciting. Same thing here. Like, well, what's the point of, of saying you can't develop a skin suit to be faster? Yes, I understand that you then you maybe have a bit of disparity between the richest teams and the poorest teams. But, you know, we're talking about a skin suit here. Like, we're, this isn't F1. We're not talking about motor development. We're not talking about, you know, just hundreds of hours in a wind tunnel. Like, yes, you can get a faster skin suit or a slower skin suit, but we're still talking about pretty small margins. And realistically, you'd have to come up with this pretty pretty special skin suit to, to get that much time out of a piece of clothing now, given the fact that, you know, rules like banning those Castelli skin suits that Garmin wore one year that basically turned you into like a flying bat flying squirrel suits flying squirrel suit yeah like that's okay you could ban that because it's a big fairing behind your arm that's basically stretched material between the the back of the arm and the and the sort of rider's side of their chest that I can see banning but like just textures textures aren't going to get you that far so I, I just I think that they need to sort of reevaluate where they draw the line here and allow a bit more experimentation, a bit more investment from from the brands that want to invest in the sport. Yeah, I don't remember what the claims are exactly as far as how how advantageous the textures are, um, but you know I can certainly like like we saw this in swimming not too long ago. I think it was at the at one of the Olympics or something where uh, I can't remember who the governing body is for swimming. But they banned these uh, these swimsuits that had texture on them because they were very very measurably faster in the water than tr- than traditional swimsuits. Um, as far as how effective these textures are, I mean, again, I don't remember exactly what the numbers are, but I th- 
I seem to recall them being more effective than I would have thought. And it's just because the body is just predominantly the, the, the biggest contributor to aero drag in a time trial. Um, so, it, I mean, it could make a pretty big difference. And I can kind of see why the UCI would want to crack down on that just because, again, I mean, at least philosophically, it is supposed to be a, a rider versus rider competition. Um, and then if there is some sort of technological development that very clearly gives the rider who has that piece of gear an advantage over someone who doesn't, then, I mean, sure. But, I mean, again, this is bike racing. I mean, it is athletes and bikes. And the bike is, regardless of what people think, the bike is always going to be some part of that equation. And, you know, the UCI can regulate it as much as they want. But unless they really, really were to crack down on it and just have like a like a little 500 sort of thing where everyone is 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 required to ride on a spec bike then i don't really see how they can completely make it a totally level playing field it's just not possible yeah and time trials are already they're already heavily determined by technology right and that's i think if you asked a hardcore time trialist that's part of the fun really is this optimization problem that you have to do not only do you have to get yourself optimized but you have to get all your equipment optimized your position optimized and all these other things it just seems like a, a pretty arbitrary line to me okay well we're gonna allow we're gonna allow companies to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to, to develop a better time trial bike but we're not gonna allow them to go in the wind tunnel and try something with a skin suit like it just doesn't make any sense and yeah you can you can like rules against fairings and things like that. I agree with those because that starts to get a bit wild. But texture, I just, I, and, and I just don't, I don't. It seems like an opportunity to tell more stories around cycling well, that the and, UCI and is, is preventing. Yeah, and, and if, you know, the UCI has, has made changes in the past that were presumably done in the, in the, in the, in the aim of sort of, leveling out playing field for teams with hugely disparate budgets. Um, but in this case, I mean, yes, I mean, there probably is a lot of money that goes in, into the development of clothing like this. But if you look at it from an amateur perspective, if someone has to spend like $3,000 on a really fast set of wheels versus like three or $400 on a really fast skin suit that can get you potentially just as much time, if not more, like, why is that a bad thing? I mean, if we're talking about aerodynamics and things that probably shouldn't be legal, then what about pox, weird, wooshy Star Trek helmets? I mean, ironically, like all all aero helmets, if you just read the UCI regulations, are illegal. Because the UCI regulations expressly ban anything that's just a fairing. And that's all a TT helmet is, right? Particularly the old ones that used to be, that used to, didn't used to protect you. They were just a head fairing. I mean, the, the rules are really unambiguous here. Time trial helmets are illegal under UCI regulations. But they just sort of, you know, it's the UCI. They, they got socks to measure. They got stuff to do. It's very important. Do, do you know what, Ryder, we're going to have to look to to see how awesome clothing could be if we were allowed all, all, the, all the UCI rules to be scrapped. Adam Anson, he rode his last race yesterday, didn't he, at the Giro? And he's going to go off and do triathlons now so you know he's going to be taking all the gains possible he's, he's going to be building his own <laughs> making sat at home with his sewing machine make his own skin suits i really hope the triathlon uh, i really hope the triathlon world pays really close attention to what that guy is doing because if anyone is going to game the system technologically it is absolutely unquestionably going to be him and he's <laughs> he, he's going to come up with stuff that people like no one's even thought about 
I look forward to watching it, honestly. Just those bikes could be ugly as sin. (laughs) He doesn't care as long as it's fast. Shadi, speaking about ugly as sin, this is uh, probably a segue that Oakley is not going to be super happy about because another thing that we spotted on Ineos Riders is a new pair of Oakley sunglasses that I'm I'm hearing is called Kato, uh, K-A-T-O. But um, these are... um, uh, I'm not really sure how to put this ugliest sin nicely. Um, <laughs> Sweet. They're, they're they're really they're they're really ugly. They're they're pretty. I mean, I I I followed Oakley through an awful lot of sunglass introductions going for a long, long, long way back. And Kaylee, you were saying before we started recording the pod that every new style is sort of you know it's it's viewed as being really ugly and kind of controversial, and then you kind of get used to it. And I I I can't. I can't do it. Like the, these remind me. These remind me of like the little thing that like Jordy had in that I old was just Star Trek say that. Next Generation yes. thing. It reminds me of that. Like if anyone listening to the pod follows the Instagram account Jerry of the Day, it's totally the Jerry sunglasses. Like I can't. Like it, it almost feels like Oakley mimicked those intentionally just to kind of get people going. Because I mean, it is Oakley. I mean, they they are not they are not ones to they're, no, they're not shy of controversy or anything. But these are. I can't. Spectacular. They secretly hired LeVar Burton to their design team. They didn't tell anybody, and he decided to make the visor as, yeah, that's what they look like to me. Uh, they're they're like they're they're kind of I mean the, the the perspective makes it look a little bit weird but you know they're they're a little bit shallow top to bottom which is kind of very much going against current trends as far as like maximizing field of view that sort of thing, and then they're really really wide. And then they have like this little bit over the nose. It's like it's like kind of like this little mini nose piece that just sort of like covers the bridge of your nose completely. And they're they're just they're they're not good. They're not good. Two points. Two These points. These are the First. ugliest glasses I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> How do you really feel about them, Abby? These are horrible, really horrible glasses. I will say that if anyone can pull them off, it might be Chris Froome. Get lost. The guy's like a little <laughs> bit goofy looking to begin with. So when you slap these glasses on it, it's like, oh, I mean, like, yeah. But I, but I, <laughs> but I, but why? That was some why? shade right there. That was some shade. <laughs> shade. <laughs> two shade. points, two points, two oh, points. Good one. Yeah. Froome's yeah. the last uh, person who can pull these off. A gangly bloke, <laughs> no, skinny gangly bloke. No, Abby, no. Stop trying to show me pictures. That's like saying, like, the least coolest kid at school can pull off, I don't know. Yeah, it just, they apparently they're called Kato because they're uh, in reference to the comic book Green Hornet and the sidekick Kato. But if anybody who does know a little bit about comic book history, they'll know that it's uh, actually started out the Green Hornet as a 1936 radio show. And this is where them glasses are going to be perfect for. They're good for a radio show. They're not good for real, <laughs> like, real life. <laughs> oh, I was wondering where you were going with that, Shadi. That was very well done. Very well done. So Y'all anyway, wrong. We, we have basically no information on these glasses whatsoever, aside from the fact that they are pending from Oakley. I've already requested information from the company. I have not heard back yet as of this recording. Um, if they happen to listen to this recording before they respond, then maybe they just won't respond. Sorry, Elisa at Oakley. 
Um, and I guess it's probably safe to say that we will not be receiving any test samples at this point because... I want some. I think they're sweet. All right. So here's here's the thing. Here's the thing. Like I said before we hit record, the next style always looks weird when it first shows up. It does. Big, those big, tall glasses that we're now used to, the, the 100%, all those, when those first came out, even on Peter Sagan, everyone was like, what on earth are those things? Because glasses got really tall, right? Now they're getting shorter again. All you have to do is look around, like in, in the sort of high fashion world, glasses are getting tiny again. We're going back to, what was that? That was like 90s, late 90s, early 2000s when sunglasses were tiny. We're trending that direction. It's coming. I'm telling you, these are going to look pretty normal, except for maybe the nose piece, which is a bit weird. They're going to look pretty normal in like three or four years. I'm telling you. But here's here's the thing though, like there was a key there's a key word that you used just then, like how every new introduction for sunglasses looks a little weird. These are not just a little weird. These are horrendous. Aw- awesome, superb. Not just weird. <laughs> Oakley have made mistakes in the past, right? Look at the racing jackets. The initial pair of racing jackets were massive, and they had to shrink them down because they were too big for people. They've also made some... Yeah, and oddly enough, had they brought them back now, they'd be yeah, great. Yeah, But it's just... Yeah. Been- That's what I mean, though. People people back then were like, oh, those are way too big. Those are silly. Give me my tiny little racing jackets. Now we look at racing jackets. They're like, why do you have like weird, tiny little su- sunglasses over your eyeballs? It's coming back. I'm telling you. Everything... Time is a flat circle. We're coming back. Sunglasses are getting short again. Short by, I mean, like, height-wise. But... It's it's inevitable. Just embrace it. Just embrace it now. This is. I'm not saying I love them. I'm just saying I'll think they're normal in three years. So I'm just gonna rather than wait three years before I think they're normal. I'm just flipping a switch in my head. They're normal right now. I'm into it. No, Oakley, send me some. I'll review them. I've got I'll a be great nice. mental image of Kaylee walking around in go-go boots and those glasses. Like they're back in style. <laughs> oh man, yes, yes, that would be amazing. And Kay- and Kaylee, you you did say quote unquote that they are sweet. Just, just to make that perfectly clear. Sweet. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's all I got. They're that's mega. all I got for Nerdlord today. They're rad. One, one last, one last thing. That shelf at the top of the lens as well. I don't know what's going on there, but it's it just looks so wrong. I can't see how they're going to breathe well either. I mean, that like functionally, I think they look pretty terrible. Like they just fog up immediately and all the time. But you know. It's just a slave to fashion, so I'll, 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 I'm willing to not be able to the see The other problem is there's loads of good brands out at the moment. <laughs> Abby's face when I said I'm a slave to fashion. <laughs> there's loads of good brands out there at the moment, and it's, I, th- I get the impression people are um, not 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 buying Oakleys as much as they used to. Like Oakley used to rule the roost. Now you've got hundred percent. You've got you've got loads of good brands out there now doing loads of interesting things. And I think Oakley are just trying to be like, oh no, we're still here, lads over here, guys. I mean, we are talking about them right now. Yeah, right? so they're doing the trick. But this is what I mean. This is what I mean. When 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 those hundred percent first came out, we were like, those look ridiculous. And now. Shoddy, you had those Scott glasses that are like, you know, the size of a freaking pie plate each side. You're like, ah, they're kind of big, but they're not that bad. Those would have, if you put those on somebody's face like six years ago, they were like, you look like an absolute imbecile. And now you're like, all right, they're kind of fine. I'm telling you, just just embrace it. Just join me over here on this side. 
just embrace the fact that whatever's ugly right now is about to be not ugly and whatever is cool right now is about to be ugly and it's just it's it's just capitalism getting us to buy new stuff all the time all right oakley if you are listening go ahead and send one sample set to kaylee send one set over to me and we may just have to have a little video discussion of these glasses they're gonna be sweet i, I think wait. it needs a, another another pod shoot out for sure <laughs> all right everybody we're gonna wrap up for today hope you enjoyed the episode hope you enjoyed hearing from reed and our discussion of the most important things in cycling like new oakley glasses before we go just a brief thank you to everybody who has joined bella club you are massively important to what we do for those who aren't yet think about it head over to cyclingtips.com slash sign up this podcast brought to you by oakley (laughs) (laughs) all right thanks for listening everybody bye-bye bye